the dreamer. Welcome to Media Roots Radio. This is Abby Martin. And this is Robbie. How is everybody doing? Doing good, dude. Doing good. So, Mike Ravel, who just had an incredibly illustrious political career, served as a huge inspiration to you and I, Robbie. Um, we had him on Media Roots previously. There's so much to talk about in regards to, you know, the path that he paved in terms of politics, fighting the military-industrial complex, drawing attention to U.S. militarism and empire. Uh, He passed away on June 26th, peacefully at his home, surrounded by family. He he was 91 years old, an absolutely incredible life that he carved out. And just to honor his legacy and just talk a little bit more about him, we are excited to have on Media Roots Radio today— Mike and Eric Jackman, hosts of Jackman Radio. Welcome to Media Roost Radio, you guys. Thanks for having us on, Abby. It's great to be here. Robbie, thank you. Yeah, Robbie and Abby, thank you so much. It's uh, it's a dream come true. It's a dream come true. <laughs> <laughs> this is the first time we've had both of the Jackmans on Media yes. Roots Radio. Yeah, people may have remembered that uh, the voice of Alex Jones on our 10-year Media Roots Radio anniversary special. Yes. Um, some people actually did think that it was Alex Jones. I mean, that's oh, how on totally. point that impression was. Like, multiple <laughs> people were just like, why would you give this person air? Like, this is this is horribly offensive that you would legitimize Alex Jones. It's like, oh, my God, that that is so sad as a side note. But that just shows, speaks to your talent. Thank um, you. That was a real, <laughs> that was, that was so much fun to do that guys. And uh, yeah, I saw some of the comments, whether it be on your um, YouTube video or I think Robbie's Facebook or the media roots Facebook, where they were like, wow, you guys actually got Alex. And I, I, I agree. So I consider that a funny dude. <laughs> I, consider I mean, that a compliment. we're still going to have to, uh, I don't want to, I don't want to spill the beans for the idea that I floated out to you uh, about what we're, we're going to go a little further with that concept. Oh yes. With with the technology that's available today in 2021, we're we're going to do some weird stuff with that beautiful weird. Alex Jones impression. Robbie, Robbie, we're going to keep Austin <laughs> weird. Okay, we are going to keep Austin weird. That's all I'm going to say. I love you baby. See you at the album. <laughs> I like how you part of your original Alex Jones impersonation was like right when Joe Rogan moved to Austin, so you like committed about <laughs> them like having a barbecue together. I forgot what it was exactly about, but it was like you got to add Tim Dillon to that, too, now. We're going to see uh, Tim yeah, wait, Dillon in a couple in of weeks in Boston. We'll send him your best, Robbie. I know he loves you. He loves you, too, Abby. You, you guys, you guys, that was awesome, Abby, when you went on Tim Dillon. That was awesome. Yeah, he's great. That was well, really he, the fun. funny. The funny thing is that he unfollowed me. So he was he was like, what happened to, what happened to your brother? Well, you unfollowed <laughs> me. <laughs> I love Abby when he's like, so, so, Abby, we got you here. So you're a journalist with Hamas. That's cool. <laughs> <laughs> You did a, that's a pretty good impression of him too, damn. Oh, oh, he's he's one of our spirit animals. We've seen him twice and we're going to go see him at the Wilbur Theater in Boston in a couple weeks. So we got front row nice. tickets. There's going to be six of us. So uh that's going to be epic. We'll let it rip and if we do get to see him or say hi to him, you know, we'll we'll tell him we're all buddies and infowars.com. Where's he Drop from? Where's Dylan dude. from? Is he Long from Island? Oh, okay, yeah. Really? He's like I'm a fat recovering alcoholic gay drunk from Long Island. <laughs> <laughs> I just watched finished watching The Sopranos, so like everybody who has that accent to me just sounds like they're a New Jersey gangster in some capacity. I love the yeah. accent though. I mean, we just interviewed Dave Ducamp, who's from uh, New Jersey, and I just love his accent. Yeah, the uh, many um, Newark, the many saints of Newark. Uh, actually, Mike and I were just talking. We have to we have to watch The Sopranos in its entirety. Our father was really big into it. He had a phase where he was watching and he started wearing track suits. He was also a used car salesman. So we were like, all right. And his name was Tony. So we're like, Jesus, Tony's oh, ter- Tony go. Jackman's Perfect. turning into Tony Soprano. <laughs> no, it's it's actually, it's it's a pretty great show in retrospect because at the time I totally ignored it, but like it's aged very well, I think. Are you going to say, Abby? I'm, 
I was going to say that Mike watched the entirety of, what is it, like nine seasons of The Sopranos? Six, when... six and a half. Okay. It seems longer than that because the episodes are very long. There's not, because it was like the era that it was in, it wasn't as like just shit going on constantly no. like you see in, in TV now. It was like very ambient. like just totally ambient. And every time I would pay attention, it was just always uh, Tony Soprano just like banging another like woman and or just talking to his therapist and i was like yeah, this yeah, seems yeah, yeah. boring as shit <laughs> like what is going on i mean but i but i appreciate that it was just like it, it was really significant for the time and like carved out just a whole like genre of just different um i don't know like it, it's well, yeah, basically it, it was like a big meme maker did you did you guys see in 2007 when uh crooked hillary was announcing for the 08 yes uh, dude i was and, i was thinking they, about they, that the entire fucking time i was watching the show because wait, i was what? like wait what happened no go they, t- explain it mike sorry so it's funny because i've never seen the sopranos <laughs> but you know of course i know about the last episode i know what the very last scene yes. is in Shaw. i'm still gonna watch it but basically they recreated the very last scene of the sopranos where tony meets his family in the restaurant um and then and then they have what the way they have it is bill and hillary meet in the restaurant to talk about the upcoming campaign so basically they're saying to everybody yeah we're gangsters yes yeah. and it's kind of foreshadowed like a, and it what? foreshadows hillary's demise too because it's like that scene is I guess supposed to end with your Tony dies. You don't see it. It's off screen. Well, it ended eight, eight years later when Donald Trump took a big dump on her. <laughs> we cemented the glass. I forgot that was eight. That was when she ran the first time. What a fucking well, that, embarrassment, wait, dude. Holy shit. Wait, wait, that is, wait, that was like a campaign commercial? That yes. Like, what? That's the launch. That's the launch video. I'm, I'm not even, I swear to God. <laughs> They're like, we're gangsters. Crooked <laughs> Hillary. Crooked she, Hillary. She's the shit. female Tony Soprano. It's fine. We're going to fly on Jeffrey's jet. It's going to be great. I don't want to ruin anybody's uh, appreciation for it, but James Gandolfini did go on some kind of weird, like, green zone tour in Iraq, and he, like, got, they let him yeah. pilot an Apache helicopter and, like, hold the gun and stuff. And, like, oh. yeah. Oh, was, he, was he actually the pilot in the collateral murder video? Is yes. that Tony Soprano? <laughs> <laughs> we knew it. I fucking knew it. Yeah. May he rest in peace. Yeah. Yes. Wonderful actor. Yeah, there's some... There's some that's not why we didn't bring you on to talk about The Sopranos. Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Jackmans. We, we brought you on to talk about the very amazing legacy of, uh, of Mike Gravel. But I guess before we go into that, why don't you at least tell our audience like w- what you guys do and where you come from? Because... You know, we talked a little bit about your politics before, Mike. How did you even meet Mike Gravel? But like, mm-hmm. maybe tell us about your backstory before you get into that. Well, yeah, uh, Eric and I have been into politics uh, really hardcore since the uh, 2004 election. Uh, we got involved in 2003 when John Kerry was running, and he was up here in New Hampshire a lot. Uh, we're from New Hampshire, and we've been here since uh, every election since 2000. Uh, we were middle schoolers then, so we had a peripheral understanding of it, but really got involved in 2004. Uh, you know, I, I was on board for John Kerry. I can admit that. And uh, that's before that's before I knew that him and George Bush were 18 cousins masturbating in coffins together. Um, <laughs> but that that is that's before I, I, I learned about a lot of stuff um, like the Federal Reserve, the never ending wars, um, the, the problems with the official 9-11 account. But really, for me, what really activated me politically was the Iraq war. Because uh, I remember the lead up to it, and I just remember all the rhetoric and all the stuff that was being said about it. And I, I just I thought to myself, this doesn't sound right. Um, you know, 9-11 had had, you know, it had occurred not that long before, of course, in uh, 2001. And um, I just remember seniors and older kids were signing up for the military uh, because of 9-11. And they were gung-ho to do it. Um, a lot of the senior profiles in our yearbook had a lot of just outright racist things against um, Arabs and, and people who were Muslim. Huh. And uh, so that was kind of the, the scenario and situation and environment where I really became politically active. And it, it really, I, I guess you can trace it back to the Iraq war was really the impetus for that. And yeah, Eric, were you, were you guys, uh, I mean, I'm assuming you guys were like good friends, even like going to school together, right? Like were you guys like bros, like then good. <laughs> Oh yeah, Always. we uh, this womb is to this tomb, is baby. womb to tomb scenario. <laughs> um, no, yeah, Mike and I we we uh, have lived together our entire lives, with the exception of one year. I lived in D.C. in 2010. I had a job down there just out of college, but it 
didn't work out down there. I even had Dennis Kucinich trying to help get me a job on the hill, and that still didn't work out. But I'm glad it didn't work out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but I came, I came back to New Hampshire. Um, but Mike and I have lived together continuously our whole lives. Uh, we both went to separate colleges here in New Hampshire. Mike went to Keene State. I went to Franklin Pierce, named after the greatest and drunkest president, the only one from <laughs> New Hampshire, Mr. Franklin Pierce, the 14th POTUS. And um, yeah, I was involved in Kerry's campaign, and Mike and I were big volunteers for that. And we actually got John Kerry to come to our high school in a town called Jaffrey, New Hampshire. He came in on his helicopter a day before the 2004 primary. No shit. And landed in the parking lot. It was like a whole to-do, and our principal was involved. And we got to stand on stage behind Kerry and then ask him a question on camera afterwards. So that was like our first real taste of politics, obviously, with the New Hampshire primary. And that's like where I got addicted to it, like the media being around – me just being a 17, 18-year-old kid, being able to rub shoulders with U.S. senators and all their surrogates who were typically Hollywood stars, other members of Congress, former ambassadors, all kinds of shit like that. We've met so many like high-profile, ridiculous people we really otherwise had no business meeting living in small-town New Hampshire. And um, so, yeah, I was a dyed-in-the-wool Democrat graduating high school, believed in the difference between Democrat and Republican. And then really I got to college um, at Franklin Pierce, majoring in political science. And this was kind of the beginnings of the 2008 primary, uh, which started really in like 06. And Ron Paul started coming to New Hampshire. I had no idea. I was like, who the hell is this Ron Paul guy? There were like banners and highways and stuff that said, who is Ron Paul? Uh, Google Ron Paul. Um, and also at that same time, Dennis Kucinich was coming to New Hampshire to run for president again because he ran in 04 and he was going to run again in 08. Um, so they both had signs all around and um, Dennis Kucinich came to Franklin Pierce um, to deliver what we call Tuesday briefings. So I got to meet him and his wife, introduce myself. And whenever any we would have candidates come through, I'd make sure to do a lot of homework on them, look into their background. And I'm like, holy shit, this obscure congressman from Ohio voted against the Iraq war? Wow, and every other Democrat who's running in this race all voted for it and were cheerleaders who pro proclaimed to be against Bush and the neocons and their 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 uh, wars when they're the ones who made the war happen. So Dennis really stood out to me. And then Mike Gravel. Uh, <laughs> so paying attention to the 08 race, I see this old guy on one of the forums off in the corner. And it, it, I'm like, who the fuck is Mike Gravel? Who is that? <laughs> who, I've never heard of this guy before. And, you know, he's up there with the likes of Biden, Dodd, Kucinich, Richardson, John Edwards, um, Crooked Hillary, uh, Chris Dodd. Obama. Uh, Obama, of course. And he, that first debate that MSN led him into where he said, some of these people frighten me. They're talking about, with respect to Iran, they're saying nothing's off. The, I got to try and do my Gravel impression because every impression I do now ends up being Trump. It's ruined all my impressions. <laughs> I know, but it's like saying, a black my, hole, my, man. My God, Robbie, some of these people frighten me. They frighten me when they're talking about war with Iran and nothing's off the table. That's code for nukes. And as far as I'm concerned, it's been immoral for 50 years and it's immoral today. And I was like, oh, my God, who is this guy, this old guy, almost 80-year-old guy ripping all these other mainstream Democrats, a new asshole, about their warmongering and their facilitating of Bush's wars and, the, and he said, the military-industrial complex not only controls our military and, and our culture, but our life, lock, stock, and barrel. And I'm like, oh, my God. So he blew me away in those debates. And I'm like, I got to get in touch with this guy. And I found out he was coming to Franklin Pierce. So I did my homework on him. I made sure I was in the room when he came into the Marlin Fitzwater Center for Communications you, you, you guys will love all the neocon connections to my college. And that's how Mike <laughs> and I know Andy Card. That's how we've had dinner with Andy Card. That's for a whole other podcast. Amazing. But um, Gravel came through and he was led into a little conference room with the president of my college, George Haggerty, who was good buddies with Andy Card. They were roommates in college, actually. And he introduces me to Senator Gravel. He says, Senator, this is Eric Jackman. He has a TV show here he does at the Fitzwater Center. He's politically engaged. He's a... Um, a poli-sci major. And, you know, during that conversation, I saw President Haggerty shake Mike's hand and say, thank you for what you did with filibustering the draft that probably saved my life. And he hugged him. And like, that was like, wow, that moment wasn't lost on me. I was seeing my college president thanking this obscure former senator who served from 69 to 81. Um, and that was kind of my intro into Gravel. And I met him and stayed in touch with him and got in with his campaign staff. And then um, 
eventually I was like, you know what, I have I, I don't care what happens. I'm going to vote for Mike Gravel in this 08 primary, and I'm going to help his campaign. So I made myself available to them and um, got a call from one of the guys, and they're like, hey, how would you like to drive the senator to uh, some campaign events this weekend? I was like, oh, dude, are you shitting me? <laughs> I get to be in a car pretty much. How just- old were you at this point? Uh, this was summer of 07, so I was 20, 20 years old and um, going on 21 in October. So the campaign rented a house in Manchester, New Hampshire. So I would, I lived about an hour from there. So I would, you know, sometimes I cut class, whatever I had to do, whatever I had to do to make my schedule line up when they needed me. I'd drive up to Manchester, pick Mike up, and it was his car I was driving, so it was pretty funny. It had Virginia plates on it because Mike lived in Arlington, Virginia at the time. And he would drive He would drive up himself with his wife, Whitney, and their little dog uh, from Virginia to New Hampshire. And that, that was his campaign transportation. And he'd have myself drive it. My friend Justin would drive sometimes. And um, we just I got to drive him all around and pick his brain. And it, really what he did a lot of the times would sit in the back and read the Wall Street Journal or the, the uh, Washington Post. You know, that's... It's like old school senator, 70s senator. You know, I don't need a screen in front of me. Just give me the date, the papers, you know, and that, that's how he would prep himself for speeches and debates and stuff. So really, really cool. That's amazing. And as you guys are talking about your like political trajectories, it's just it brings up such nostalgia to me because, I mean, that's how I, I mean, I don't know if I could speak for you, Robbie, but that's how I pretty much got involved. I mean, I got involved in the Kerry campaign doing like a swing state trip before I was politically radicalized, you know, because of all the things that you guys just mentioned. And then going into the 2006, when the campaign started ramping up, discovering Ron Paul, discovering Mike Gravel, discovering Dennis Kucinich. And it just seems like it was just so much more interesting during that time. And now it's just like, I don't know, it just depresses me more to see like like the political scene today and where we're at, you know, I feel like we're so much more divided than this kind of broader movement was back then. And also Mike Gravel was just so lucid and on point as, you know, even in his last years, like listening to the interview that you guys did with him. um, Eric, I think you sent me that. I think it was two years ago. Like he was so goddamn on point, just dropping so many facts, dates. I mean, it was unbelievable. Like at 90 years old, being able to articulate himself in the manner that he did up until his last days. So just really inspiring all around. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and he was 76 when I first met him. So this is, I'm a 20 year old kid. He's a 76 year old former Senator. And he really was, he was so sharp and he was, he was just really a sweet guy. You know, he was like, he was like my surrogate grandpa, my, uh, you know, based former Senator who was there in the seventies during Watergate, (laughs) during Nixon, on the coming off the big assassinations of the 60s. Um, this guy was in the mix for a lot of historic stuff. And, and as a 20-year-old kid and a political nerd, none of that was lost on me. And that's why I knew I had this unbelievable, probably once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to really get to spend time where there's no cameras, there's no press, there's no we-have-to-be-in-campaign-mode type stuff. And, and it was just really, really special and it will leave an impact on me for the rest of my life. And it's, Mike Gravel is one of the reasons that I don't really give a fuck what people think about me when I speak Mm -hmm. my mind and and, and when I talk about something that I know to be factually true, but it's going to draw fire from everybody because that guy walked the walk in the U.S. Senate and he fought the war machine tooth and nail as much as he could, oftentimes by himself as a singular voice. So to see that, like you said, Abby, it is so inspiring. And these are Gravel, Kucinich, Paul, these are political leaders that I legitimately look up to, you know, looked up to and still do in a lot of ways. And like so many true giants um, in, in this kind of broader movement of fighting empire, people's memory is not truly honored and they're not given the accolades that they truly deserve because, of course, they're marginalized most of their lives. They're undermined, you know, from the establishment. They're ridiculed. Um, but Mike Gravel did not care about any of that. And so I'm, I, you know, in a way, I'm happy that the Gravel teens kind of resurrected his legacy and and made him kind of viral in terms of like memory and all this stuff. Um, but there was a lot omitted as well, like in, in that, you know, that encapsulated who he was and his true spirit and stuff like that. But it, so it was cool in a way to see him, 
you know, come up and and reinsert himself in the, in the 2020 race and all of that um, and, and put his message out there and put anti-war messaging like front and center again. But um, but yeah, I mean, for the majority of his career, I feel like no one really even like associated him with the Pentagon Papers and stuff. It was just all about Daniel Ellsberg, you know, like it, it, I didn't really learn about him in my political education at school. Let's just say that. No, I mean, the, the high school, you never heard about him. In college, you never heard about him. We certainly didn't really know about him until uh, he appeared in one of those debates, like Eric said, um, or w when he was starting to come up to New Hampshire. And it's funny, Eric uh, said, who's Mike Gra uh, Gravel, you know, Gravel. <laughs> and you, you did mispronounce his name, Eric, I think the first time you met him. He's like, it's Gravel. And uh, <laughs> the thing about him, too, is he actually had a really great sense of humor about all of it, um, given the fact that he did have some financial hardship um, you know, the, the last campaign was pretty bitter. I think he was pretty worn out and broken by the end of it. I think he, there were some financial problems and certainly he was in the system for two terms as a senator and, you know, kind of mentioned to us that he could, he can understand why people, he can see that eventually they sell out or they go crooked or they go a, a certain direction. And, and it's not that he saw himself becoming that, but that he, he had said if he was in there longer, it, it may have been harder to to resist that or, or to not go along with it so much. He, he, and I don't know how he felt about this. So maybe you can reflect on this a little bit, or maybe you have some insight early in his life. He was considering uh, joining the IDF to fight in the Israeli Palestinian war. And he decided not to, his life could have been drastically different. You know, he decided to do something like that. And then uh, he also took part on spying on uh, communist activists while he was still doing government work as a young man. And obviously at some point he must have shifted his views, you know, on a lot of these things. Did he ever talk about that or like, you know, how he ch had changed over the years? Right. So he was army intelligence and he was fluent in French uh, by way of uh, Quebecois, like French Canadian speaking. I believe his parents were both from Quebec and they immigrated to Springfield, Massachusetts. And Mike was born there in 1930. Um, so certainly that uh, lent itself to infiltrating communist rallies and um, parades and gatherings over in Europe. I don't remember exactly which country it was, but... Um, Is he in France? Probably, yeah. I mean, that would probably make the most sense, right? France or... Um, so yeah, he, he was over there having to infiltrate those and, you know, take notes on it and, and get information about it to report back. And I just, uh, from what I've read, I, I never really had a chance to talk to him one-on-one -on -one about that kind of stuff. But from what I've read about it, he was disgusted at it, at the idea of it. And um, he came back and he went to uh, Columbia in New York City. And, um, you know, he knew he wanted to be educated. And, uh, you know, he knew the path forward was, was not being a, uh, a spy for the military. He just was so put off by it. He didn't like this idea of listening in on people. Um, and and, and kind of like that movie, The Lives of Others, about the Stasi, where you, I don't know if any of you guys have seen. Yeah, so I, I think he was kind of getting getting those kind of vibes where he didn't want his life to go in that direction. And, uh, you know, he's just he comes from a um, humble blue collar background of uh, French Canadian immigrants into Massachusetts. So he got, gets through Columbia and that leads him uh, to going to Alaska to work for the railroad. And uh, he worked on the railroad for a while, then he worked in real estate, and he, he has, his eye was to get into politics by any means necessary. And he wasn't a rich guy, didn't come from a rich family. So he drove cabs for a while in New York City while he was at Columbia. That's like how he paid for tuition and stuff, and um, made his way to Alaska, the, the frontier, and got into politics up there, got elected into the state house, and then eventually became speaker of the Alaska House of Representatives. And he told me, he's like, I got to tell you, Eric, I stepped on a lot of goddamn toes to get there. He's <laughs> like, I did, I did not make many friends doing that. And, um, you know, he had to promise shit to people like committee chairmanships. And uh, <laughs> then, then when he got the speaker of the house and he, he didn't give those to the people who were expecting them, he would, he had a line like, oh, that, you know, that was a political promise. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> And, and, and that's that's kind of where he learns the wheeling and dealing game of the of politics and um, the cloakroom kind of stuff. 
And, you know, he's doing this. He, he's not going to be staying put in the state legislature. He has his eye on federal office. And um, it comes up to the 68 primary. And he has – you guys have probably seen it. Mike Gravel, A Man for Alaska, this 30-minute infomercial ad that he had created. He had a camera crew follow him all Tell around me. Alaska. When was this? This was during his primary uh, to get the Democratic nomination for the U.S. Senate race. Oh, wow. Okay. Yep. And uh, he – yeah, he, he really was like one of the first to really use like a TV infomercial uh, kind of kind of medium to sell himself politically, to sell his campaign. And he, he really paid attention to Native issues. He met – you know, he went to parts of the state and met with uh, tribal leaders and, and people who were just – not involved in the process, not usually spoken to, not even thought of. So that that made a lot of uh, noise, got a lot of attention. And he won that primary handedly and ran. He actually ran to the right of Ernest Gruning, who he was running against on Vietnam. He said, I kept I really kind of kept my mouth shut about how I really felt about Vietnam so I could win the seat. <laughs> and he won the seat and then he got into the Senate and then he went in the other direction and became the uh, stalwart um, against the Vietnam War and Empire. So it re- it's really an interesting trajectory how he got there. And uh, one of his faint Really quickly to let people know how long he's been in the game here. Uh, he moved to Alaska before it was even officially a state. And yeah, he told NPR later, he was like, yeah, I lied about my stance on Vietnam because I wanted to get elected. Yeah. You know, and then and then immediately yeah, was, becomes this bulwark uh, to try to end the draft. Um, and then right after that, you know, in 71, putting the Pentagon Papers in record and just a vociferous advocate for ending the war completely. Um, you know, it's interesting. I wonder how how he was revered at the time. I wonder if like he was constantly lambasted by like the media at the time and stuff. I mean, did he ever give insight on how he was received once he put himself out there like that? Yeah, they accused him of being just attention seeking. And when he convened his uh, Senate grounds committee that he was chairman of to read the papers into the record, it brought him to tears as probably would any of us. If you're just reading this shit for the first time and you're, and you're, and you're exposing the crimes of the war and that the fact that it's not to be won, but it's to be sustained and prolonged, um, you know, they called him a show, a showboater. Um, they had nicknames for him. I can't remember what some of them were. But yeah, he, he said there's, there's always that elite media um, establishment in Washington that's obviously in bed with our intelligence agencies that always will thumb its nose at anybody who does anything to be perceived as anti-war or against their interests. So, you know, he, uh, he liked the Maverick um, label. He embraced that because he certainly was. He was called that a lot on a lot of shows that he would go on. Um, but um, yeah, the, the media would, would call him reckless and crazy and, you know, showboating and that kind of stuff. Well, I remember even during uh, the, the 2008 primary when he was running that the media sort of almost portrayed him like this kook. But not only that, they didn't really explain who he was like they they didn't mm-hmm. seem to really care to be like yeah this guy has been like a senator forever he like has played this role in the pentagon paper they didn't tell us shit and they're just like yeah this guy's like a blowhard let's like barely show him and just show like silly clips of him <laughs> chopped up you know because he's an old he's an old guy and sometimes he sounds like he's yelling and it's sort of like but it was so interesting to actually talk to him when abby and i interviewed him those two separate times because I can't imagine feeling that comfortable even interviewing someone like Ron Paul or Dennis mm-hmm, Kucinich or some mm-hmm. of these other people, even though they maybe seem like they're down to earth. Mike Gravel really seemed like a, just like you were just hanging out with him, talking to right. him. It, there's very little like condescension. There's very little vibes that you were actually talking to this, you know, died in the wool really politician who's been oh. in office for this long. It was, it was, it was pretty cool actually. And there, and he didn't seem to have talking points ready to go. He was just very naturally responsive of and genuine. Yeah, totally agree with you, Robbie. That's very rare. What was your? I mean, did you guys have that experience where you were surprised about how down to earth he was? Yeah, it was. It was really cool. One time uh, we were talking to him. I, Eric, it, might, it was you or I who said, um, "Do we know the truth about nine 11 He's like, "Hell no." <laughs> <laughs> It was just nice. he didn't. It wasn't. It wasn't a political answer. Um, yeah, yeah. He was very down to earth and and behind the scenes, just a 
a regular guy. I remember having um, a really nice Thai meal with him in Keene, New Hampshire. Um, and after the event, you know, of course, where he's, he's given the fiery, uh, you know, oratory speech, we're just having like a nice dinner, just just talking about, uh, you know, what, whatever's going on in the world. And, um, you know, he took a real interest in, in what um, you were interested in as well. And he really did care. I mean, why would a 76, 77-year-old guy who knows he has a snowball's chance in making it be up there doing it if it wasn't to advance real issues and really try to get it out there for people to, to hear about? Because they weren't going to hear it from anyone else. Yeah, and, and, and one instance of this, this was after the campaign. This is when he was like thinking about running for the Libertarian nomination after the Democratic primary had ended in 08. I made my way to Washington for my spring break in 2000, March of 2008. And one of my best friends who was in the Army at the time had been hit by a car down there. And he was actually at Walter Reed recovering. He had a room at Walter Reed. And um, I went and stayed with him for a week. And you want to talk about fucking enraging and eye-opening being there amongst, you know, veterans missing limbs and heads bandaged up and all that stuff. But uh, Mike had always told me, hey, if you ever make it down to D.C., uh, here's my number. Look me up. Let's get together. And um, so I went down there and I called Mike and said, hey, I'm staying at Walter Reed for a week with a friend. He'd love to meet you. Uh, and uh, we'd love to just meet up. So he's like, yeah, let's let's meet up at the uh, there's a Starbucks near the White House. So we met up at Starbucks, you know, caught up. We hadn't seen each other in a little while. And he asked my friend about what he was doing, what he did in the army, uh, why he was at Walter Reed. And he told him, yeah, I was hit in a hit and run in a crosswalk here in DC. And I got a bad head injury. And, um, you know, the next day the army had me on my hands and knees scrubbing the floor and I wasn't like properly taken care of. And, you know, wow, big surprise, the army not taking care of someone. And he told Mike more and more of the story. And I could tell Gravel was getting more and more pissed the more mm -hmm. he heard about it. And he was like absolutely incensed. And, um, you know, we, we talked more about it and kind of dropped it and said our goodbyes. He, he, uh, it's funny, he, I had him sign a bunch of copies of uh, Senate stationary stuff from his career in the Senate. And then we get back to Walter Reed and I got a voicemail on my phone. I'm like, oh shit, uh, the senator called while we were on the uh, Metro, you know, because I didn't have service. And it was Mike on the voicemail and he said, Eric, it's Senator Gravel. I am just incensed at the way the military treated your friend. I need to connect you with a lawyer I know here in town who I think could maybe help him. It would at least be worth talking to him. And uh, he gave me his name and number, this real high-powered lawyer that Gravel knew down there. And uh, I asked my friend, hey, man, do you want to maybe go talk to this lawyer? Because nothing was really happening with his case, and he wasn't really getting any help. And he said, of course, why not? So, you know, we went and met with the lawyer and nothing came of it, but just for Mike to afterwards be stewing on what he heard, my, my friend's story, he was just so incensed. So Mike was always an advocate. He was always an advocate for the people. He always cared, obviously being a former army guy himself, my buddy's story resonated with him and he did what he could to try and help. You know, nothing came of it, but still most other politicians or people of yeah. any note or power, they wouldn't do shit for you. Yeah, it goes in one ear out the other. It's just like, all right, just shake yeah. hands, kiss baby, and move on. But I mean, he really, really was so passionate and and really genuinely gave a shit. And it and yeah. it didn't matter if it was something like the Iraq War or just a personal story of someone who's affected by the negligence um, of this. And that that's really powerful. It really speaks a lot to his character. And and one of the things I wanted to go back to, Abby touched on it earlier, is this sort of history that Mike Gravel has with, you know, the concept of 9-11 truth. It's become such a, a dirty word these days. It's, you know, people only associate it with kookiness or annoying, you know, speculative types of theories about 9-11. But Gravel actually was advocating for a new legitimate investigation of 9-11. I say legitimate, you know, not necessarily new because there was never really a, a full investigation in the first place. But Gravel actually made this sort of one of his issues after he ran for president in 2008. Um, and I don't really remember what came of that. I think it was like a trying to be a ballot initiative. And I think that this, I remember vaguely the state of New York, like knocking it down on some kind of technicality, even though it won. Got right, even signatures. though it got, yeah, it got like 50,000 signatures, but they still. Yeah, there was something odd. Yeah. I, yeah, maybe you guys could fill us in on that. And then, you know, and then recently, 
um, the sort of what who are known as the Gravel teens, these these two young guys. I think there's two only two of them who Mike Gravel was working with on his new presidential campaign. And at first I was like, oh, this is really cool that these like young people got attracted to, you know, someone like Mike Gravel, like that they would even, you know, find out about someone like that and be into him. Um, but then I sort of started to hear through the grapevine and started seeing evidence of them basically like not mentioning anything he said about 9-11 or actually like visibly like sort of um, like banning, shadow banning like <laughs> podcasts that talked about his 9-11 views. Like we, you know, we had him on, for example, and we let him just speak honestly about them. Um, I think Primo Nutmeg had the same experience with him. I don't remember if you guys actually had him on your show at the same time and had him talk about that as well, but we just thought it was odd that the that the teens kind of skipped over Primo Nutmeg and, and the Media Roots appearance and then like pretty much, you know, tweeted out every single other thing. You know, usually I'm like, oh, maybe I'm just being narcissistic and, you know, someone, I'm just butthurt someone didn't promote our podcast, but I started hearing things that, uh, they didn't like him to talk about it. And he actually said when we interviewed him that they didn't like him to talk about it. So <laughs> these dots started to connect and we were like, hmm, that's strange. So I don't know, what do, how do you guys feel about that overall? And, and you know, you guys were sort of, I don't know how involved you ever got with that movement, but you were involved enough to see Mike Gravel sort of dipping his toe in there and actually putting some of his legacy on the line really by even associating himself with what became a third rail. And then you also... I'm sure I know a little bit about what the teens' uh, thoughts about the, his 9-11 views were. So either one of you comment on, on that. Yeah, so in 2008, he was part of uh, what you guys were saying earlier. It was a, a ballot initiative out of New York City. Um, and I think I think Ted Walter worked on this as well. Um, or that may have been a later one. But New York City a, can? Yeah, uh, yeah, that might have been a different one. But it was, it was a ballot initiative that was going to be on the November, um, you know, election ballot. And they also had um, Lincoln Chafee that was involved. They had a couple of the Jersey girls like Lori Van Auken, um, you know, you know, real serious people, uh, survivors, uh, victims, family members. And I think it was, you know, kind of modeled after citizen power, which is why Gravel really wanted to get involved with it because he really believed that the, the citizenry should be responsible for, you know, a, a lot of this stuff and direct democracy and, um, you know, looking into, uh, you know, government crimes and whatnot and uh, malfeasance. Uh, so, yeah, I, I remember him getting flack for that. And uh, I do remember that the teens a couple of years ago or a year or two ago, when that was brought up, they were like, oh, he can't be perfect about everything because, like you said, 9-11 was regarded as the third rail. Um, but I, I highly doubt that those young fellows really even know that much about 9-11. Who knows if they were even born when it happened? So that's why there's a there might be a disconnect. I mean, I'm in my mid-30s now. I remember the day you know, very clear, uh, but someone who's 17, 18, or however old they are, are not going to remember it. So, um, yeah, I just remember him saying that when you have investigations, there's always more disclosure, there's more information that comes out. So why not have more, you know, or a legitimate investigation that has real subpoena power and, um, you know, can be properly funded and just basically more sunshine on it. So um, I know he was in favor of that. And, uh, yeah, he's, of course he took flack for that. Um, one one quick thing I wanted to jump in there is that it, he was so unique in the sense that he he really stuck with this. I mean, he didn't backtrack like a lot of people out there when they get flack and when they are ridiculed for this. He actually was just completely consistent and actually put it front and center um, for the last, I don't know, like 12 years or so. I mean, ever since, you know, he, he made it the central core issue of his in um, in the wake of his 2008 run. And I thought that that was just really astounding. I mean, it was it was very unique. It's a very unique trait of someone who's that credible to put themselves out there like that. And the thing about it is, is that it seemed like this think tank that is um, the progressive mold, the Gravel Institute, was trying to sanitize this part of his legacy, whereas he is not embarrassed at all. You know, he is very proud of this element of of his beliefs. The Gravel teens were on it. They did a vice piece about the whole Gravel 2020 thing. And that was one of the questions the guy asked the teens on the beach. He's like, you do realize that Mike Gravel is a 9-11 truther. And, you know, obviously mm -hmm. he's saying it in a demeaning way, a belittling way, almost kind of bullying the two Gravel teens or trying to intimidate them into 
saying, oh, no, no, not us. Yeah, maybe he said some crazy things. You know what I mean? Like, they, he, almost like, the, you know, of course, Vice is going to do that. They're a bunch of, yeah, they're, yeah they're a bunch of assholes. Yeah. But, um, yeah, you're absolutely right, Abby. He, he didn't back down from it. And he, he was never afraid to talk about it. He didn't care who he was talking to, um, if it was in public or private. And he, he had the reservations he had. And this is, this is based on a guy who served 14 years in the United uh, – sorry, 12 years in the United States Senate – in the U.S. military intelligence, you know, this this, this isn't just some clown. It's not mm-hmm. some clown, as as the legacy Mockingbird media would have all of everybody believing or wanting to think about him. So, if anyone does a little bit of digging or looks, they'll realize that Mike is actually a very credible voice on those kind of things. Well, he saw it from the lens of like the Pentagon Papers. Like, of course, mm-hmm. there's going to be more information that's to be found about 9/11, about the Iraq 100%. War. And so that's that's the lens that he was looking at it through. So that's why it's so fascinating to me. It's like this whole idea of like anti nine eleven truth was weaponized even by people, some people on the left during the Bush era. And it's like looking back on it, it's like that was one of the most openly criminal administrations we're ever going to see in our lifetimes. There were that many people trying to tell us to shut up. I mean, like that is fucking disturbing, honestly. Yeah. We let those motherfuckers get away with so much shit and probably so much more shit that we'll never know. Yeah, history's been rewritten now to make it seem like nobody credible was on the record, you know, and this is a part of his legacy that we need to understand and, and actually look into, you know, because he's right about everything. Yeah. Dennis Kucinich, to his credit, um, was very open to investigating 9-11 um, my, my friend and Mike and I were certainly in his ear in 2007 and 2008. We had dinner with him. Um, I had dinner with him one time and we would just kind of ask him like, hey, you know, you, <laughs> anything fishy about this to you? He said, oh, absolutely, you know. And then we would ask Ron Paul. We'd see Ron Paul another week at a campaign event. So we had the ear of two of these really maverick dark horse um, left and right but like truthful mm-hmm. left and right people libertarian firebrand ron paul and then left uh anti-war crusader dennis kucinich so we, we got to the point where we asked ron paul about it and said would you stand with ron with dennis kucinich in advocating a new investigation in 9-11 and ron paul's like yeah yeah i, I would I'll, I'll talk to dennis about that <laughs> so that like became a meme between my brother and i and my friend justin where I'd be like, hey, Justin, um, you going to grab us a 12-pack of beer tonight for the party? He'd be like, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll talk to Mike about that. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then that blew up on the O'Reilly Factor, actually, when we interviewed Ron Paul at his first New Hampshire house party. They called us a student coop group. Remember that? <laughs> oh, my yeah. God. No That's way. Right. It was incredible. It was so good. But, but, but Justin got Dana Prino in the end, man, when she came to campus. And yeah. uh, had a whole bunch of quotes. And John Gold helped us with that. It's, I'll have to find it. That's it's hilarious. Incredible, incredible confrontation that my buddy had with Dana Perino where he just threw all the Bush administration lies and bullshit about <laughs> Iraq and 9-11 right at her at this at this like closed forum thing at our college. Butt-ki- she had to sit there and listen event. to it. Oh, it was all a bunch of butt-kissing journalist students and there there we were. It was ass crazy. <laughs> Can't do that anymore, man. That shit doesn't exist anymore. It, do- it doesn't. I, did you guys have any insight on what – was it just the Bush administration's complete – and total corruption and war crimes in terms of the invasion of Iraq that prompted him to get back involved in politics? Because it was a couple decades where he was, you know, just doing his own thing. Um, and then, of course, he comes back as this firebrand and, you know, that infamous oh, debate yeah. sh- showdown and all of that. Um, what what was his insight and in wanting to do that? I think it was that, just the, the, the surveillance, the war on terror, and the fact that we torture people. That just... Yeah. That incensed him that we were torturing people. You didn't even you didn't hear any Democrats on the debate stage even really acknowledging that, you know, because of course we don't torture. Um, so yeah, I think it was Iraq and you know all this the stuff that came out from that. Also, his National Initiative for Democracy that was another driving force behind him getting in the race. Um, he was, I think, really the first to announce in '06 at the National Press Club that he was running. And part of, of opposing imperialism in the wars was the National Initiative for Democracy, which was a thing Gravel had always been in, which is really promoting ballot initiative at, I think, the local, state, and federal level, where the U.S. people become partners with Congress. Expl- yeah, how does that work, like the National Initiative of Direct Democracy? I never really understood that. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, it's funny. I talked to him a little bit about it, but I, w- I was so into the anti-war stuff and <laughs> – 
I, I was pretty intrigued about it, but uh, I'll be honest, I, I never I never dug too deep into his National Initiative for Democracy stuff. So the listeners could probably just Google Mike Gravel, mm-hmm. um, NID4. Um, well, I feel bad, was, too. That was his le- the last time we talked to him, Robbie, he was saying that he was putting out a book that was going to actually yeah. like explain this. I, I mean, did he did he end up doing that in the last the, two years? Yeah, the, the book came out. Okay. Yeah, he put he put the book out, and it's funny. His vanity plate on his license plate was N I four D National Initiative for Democracy, Virginia plates that we were driving around here in New Hampshire. But I think the crux of or the the crux of it is it's where we become citizen legislature legislators, and and we usurp power away from Congress. I don't know exactly how you do that, but um, let the people decide. Yeah, that was his. That was his big quote from that. My, yeah, my, my God, stop my, and think. My God, <laughs> let the people decide. The official 9-11 story has more holes than you could drive a Mack truck through. <laughs> <laughs> He's very animated. He, he had a way of getting his uh, uh, pointed me- message out, you know, very uh, very astutely, but also very, you know, it was very colorful how he did it. So he's he's going to be missed, man. I don't think we're ever going to see anybody like him in politics, man, on the national level. Or um, <clears throat> it's it's almost like Trump took some out of his playbook when it comes to the flair and the and the, mm-hmm. the you know the, the panache, just like he did to Jesse Ventura and other you know politicians before him that were had the showmanship. But he didn't learn any lessons from it, any good lessons. He didn't take anything else other than the. The showmanship. So, yeah, and he was cut from um, a different cloth. I mean, he didn't have a base of party support. That's why you kind of saw him fluctuate. He was like, all right, let me try the libertarian nomination out because I, the Democrats certainly don't fucking speak for me. Um, and what I found, you know, I completely agree with him on this point where he was just like, yeah, I mean, looking at the presidential stage or the, the, the campaign stage back during the 2020 election, he's like, how is it possible that we're this deep in the war on terror? And like, it's just a tacit endorsement of the empire and just this ongoing insanity from 99% of the people out there. You know, I mean, Bernie, to a certain extent, Tulsi, um, but it was just like everyone else was just not even talking about it. It's like, this is the fucking issue, guys. And that's, I really appreciated just to the end of his life. I mean, he was just so passionate about, about making people understand the biggest threat that not only Americans face, but humanity at large. Yeah, I think I think for that was career defining, and that's really how he saw it. And he was so ahead of the curve on on so many issues too. Like, there's a great quote I was just thinking of today when I was in the car. Um, you know, about don't ask, don't tell, or about um, you know people in the military who are gay. He's like, my God, you don't have to be straight to shoot straight. You know, that was one of the things he used to say when, when there'd be like bigoted or, you know, homophobic stuff that mm-hmm. would come up. He, he would be like, I don't care what their sexuality is or, you know, none of that mattered to him. Man, What mattered to him was the truth and, uh, you know, um, you know, getting that out there. So, yeah, he was the dude was ahead of his time, man, for sure. And he feel, did uh-huh. he did Cohen endorse when he was out of the race in 2020. He wasn't going to get in the debates. He did. He endorsed both Bernie and Tulsi mm-hmm. and he projected that kind of anti-war, uh, you know, legacy and then those ethos onto both of their campaigns. And, um, you know, obviously I was big in Tulsi's campaign and we, we did our best to tell her about a lot of these things. And early on in the campaign, I got to give my brother a lot of credit. He told Tulsi about all the um, classified files relating to Saudi Arabia's involvement in the 9-11 funding that were down in Florida related to the hijackers down there. Uh, where is it? Sarasota. Oh, Mike? wow. Do you think that yeah. that, that yeah. helped prompt her to talk about that issue? So, yeah, in conversations I had, uh, so we, we Mike talked about that with her, what, in March, Mike, of, of 2019? Uh, yeah, I just remember after an event, just just mentioning to her, I had a couple moments with her, and uh, she, she said, I was not aware of that, but I will look into it. And I never brought it up again. And then flash forward to September, she was up there with um, in New York, the only candidate to do this with family members and survivors calling for the release of that information. That's so that fascinating. Cool. That's fascinating. Yeah. So, you know, we, we've never stopped talking about this stuff and, and any kind of influence we could have or, or get it in front of the right ears. And when she filed for the primary, uh, 9-11 survivor, Tim Froelich, drove up from New York City and stood with us when she filed. And, and I got to know him through this. And he's, he's a fascinating guy. He's got quite a story. He's involved in the lawsuits against the Saudis and everything. Mm-hmm. He lost a lot of friends in the World Trade Towers. And um, 
you know, he was very appreciative of, of Tulsi's efforts. So, God. you know, I, I know she's obviously, you know, no candidate's going to be perfect on everything. We're not going to agree with candidates 100% of the time. But, um, you know, I do give her a lot of credit for that. And, you know, that's why I'm, I'm, I was a big supporter of her and, and still am. I mean, it just angers me so much to even just be talking about this because it's just it's just infuriating um, the the debate right now, you know, and just how how much it's devolved, you know, like the fact that this is just taboo. It's like, I mean, how long is it going to take before we can just honestly address the elephant in the room, you know? Um, and, and what, you know, just one more side note that just popped in my head about Mike Gravel in our last conversation. And I was really honored that he knew who I was too. I was, I was uh, deeply honored at that. And he, he seemed to support our, our work quite a bit, Robbie. Uh, but one thing that I found really cute is that he actually like, you know, like he could have gotten up, he could have been like, yeah, Biden's a war criminal. He's a fucking horrible, you know, like all this stuff. And he was just like, Biden is just a really nice guy. He's like, yeah, I totally disagree with his policies and like think that they would be like absolutely awful for the country. He's like, and I, and I hope that, you know, he beats Trump. Of course, Trump is horrible. He's like, Biden's just a really likable guy and like really nice. It's like he couldn't even, he was just too <laughs> nice so to even be like, <laughs> Biden's a piece of shit. Like we all know he is, you know, he was an architect of the Iraq war. He was pushing the Iraq war in the democratic field, but like, he still was just like, he's just too nice. <laughs> yeah. One of the great things he said that was funny too. And, and obviously he there, I mean, he despised George Bush and the Bush administration. And uh, we were talking to him and, and someone said, well, What's the car ride going to be like on inauguration day when you're in there when Bush is leaving? He's like, it's going to be quiet. I used to say to Mike, I said, Mike, if you had two words to say to George Bush, what would you say? Drop dead. <laughs> <laughs> I guess his niceness right. only I mean, extends to people that are not like <laughs> like people like George Bush. Well, they Bush. were in the I love Senate it. together. I mean – he, uh, uh, Gravel was in the Senate with Biden for almost all of the 70s. Mm -hmm. So I think that's probably yeah. why he and he made a similar comment to Eric last summer when he was on our podcast. He pretty much said the same thing he said to you about liking Biden personally. Mm -hmm. and he's he's I mean, he is. We've met Biden a couple of times. He's a lot of fun, just like Trump is fun. Uh, forget for this uh, for the fact that they're. Why, 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 come on, man. But hey, come on, man, was a Vote for someone else. Remember that, remember that whole, like. I'm Joe Biden, I brought it for the Senate, give me a look. If you don't like me, check talk to the other guy. Come on, man. This is so, Abby, Abby, let me whisper I'm talking about the soul of America. If you don't vote for me, you ain't black. Track it. Dude. N.W.A. Can you believe it? <laughs> I heard it from Val Sharpton to Clyburn to God's lips. Vote for me. Where's my sister wife? I want to make out with one of you or both of you. Biden, 2024. I wonder what he thinks every time he sees Hunter's text being slow, slow rolled out uh, still from the laptop. Eminem dick. Uh, someone stack. showed, I don't know. They probably scrubbed that for him before they show it to him. They, they show a picture his granddaughter made at school. <laughs> oh my lord, man! Uh, I mean, so I... If one of us has, I mean, obviously, drug problems aside, I have a lot of empathy for people who have substance issues, and that's low-hanging fruit to try and make fun of. But if us or someone in our family were involved in that kind of criminal behavior and that many strikes, and and like we'd all be in prison, like just oh yeah, just just looking at it from that perspective with. with the, the gun that he left in a, in a trash can and it's yeah it's, we ain't in the club baby it. it's a big old club That's and we ain't big, in it well let's uh let's, you ain't in it. <laughs> let's wrap this up this is an incredible episode you guys i'm so happy you were able to come on and shed just such great stories about your time with mike Ravel and um you know really honor his true legacy and and hopefully it serves as an inspiration for people to to really just stand up for what you believe don't worry about the flack don't worry about fitting in. Don't worry about adhering to some absurd status quo. Um, just just march to the beat of your own drummer, just like Mike Gravel did. And that's how I'm going to live my life. Um, and, you know, why don't we wrap it up by by just hearing a couple of your guys' impressions? Because, you know, aside from being great journalists, uh, you guys also are just hilarious fucking comedians, as people can probably tell uh, uh, during the course of this podcast. But why don't you throw out uh, some Trump impersonation too because it's really good 
Eric, do Trump uh, eulogizing Senator Gravel? Okay, what would yeah. you say in a eulogy for Gravel? Yeah. Well, look, I didn't, I didn't know Mike Gravel. Okay, I've heard, I've heard some nice things about him. He was French. Look, I love the French. I love French people. I love French Dijon mustard. Okay, sometimes I like French frog legs. I'll eat frog legs. Okay, if they're cooked. Well done, and I can put ketchup on him, Abby. I'll eat him, okay? But Mike Gravel was a wonderful man, and he was fighting the deep state in the 70s when I was banging six-foot-tall Slovakian hookers at Studio 54, okay? It's just the truth. It's the way I see it. But Mike will always be remembered for fighting the empire and fighting the deep state, putting the Pentagon Papers out there, Ending the draft. Boy, thank God he ended the draft. I mean, I had my dad uh, having doctors faking medical records of bone spurs to get me out. But there were other people who weren't so lucky as I was and didn't have Fred Trump doing that. So the draft was a very real possibility for them. And they had to worry about it. But Mike Gravel took care of that for him. And he took care of it so beautifully. So rest in power, Senator. I love you, Trump 2024. <laughs> Oh, man. <laughs> Mike, nice. Mike, I mean, you've been working on your Biden. Oh, yeah. I haven't heard that yeah, yet. Yeah, let's hear it. Hey, Hunt, look. Look, let me tell you something here. Hunter's the smartest man I know, Robbie. <laughs> you kind of remind me of Hunter. Actually, no, you remind me of Bo. I want to make this <laughs> a little deeper, a little darker. <laughs> you remind me of Bo, Robbie. You remember when I used to read your bedtime stories when I would take the Amtrak home late from the Senate bath? Those were the best times I ever had, man. I played, look, hey, no, I'm serious. I played on the Senate baseball team. I hit a home run so far. Man, it went right over the wall. That's what I'm talking about. Get the vax. <laughs> <laughs> this looks like super disturbing. <laughs> oh. And dark. Wait, did you so say get the vax? Yeah. Get the, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we go, we go, well, it's, well, see, we're, we're doing, we're doing a, our first live show together, um, a live Jackman radio this week, oh, and it's going to come out as a special on YouTube. And uh, the Biden impression is making its big live debut. So we're, we're still making a few tweaks. But, you know, when I come, you come home from work and your mom's washing the dishes and she's at the dinner table. That's what I know about, man. That's what I am. <laughs> Look, I'm not proud. Abby, I'm serious. Is that Pantene Pro-V, by the way? If you vote for me, you're voting for your dinner table. And the heart and soul to come back. And reconstruction in Iraq. My brother's going to build Iraq back better. Come on, man. I know. How come there's no like Bidenisms? Like there, like Bushism was such a thing, you know, like the food on your family and all that. It's like, dude, like no one talks about how insane <laughs> the stuff that Biden well, we can't, actually can't says. Make fun of Biden. Yeah, can't right. Yeah. I mean, none of, the, none of the late night hosts talk about him. There's, there's, uh, I, I thought Jim Carrey's impression of him was pretty good on SNL. Um, but I mean, the media just gives him a tongue bath all the time. So yeah, Bush was a lot of fun to make fun of. Of course, Trump, yeah. uh, the most fun. Uh, but Biden, yeah, it's it's, it's a also tough one. Abby. It, I, I got a message from one of your old friends. It's me, Governor Jesse Ventura. Abby, <laughs> how you doing, sweetheart? It's been a while. Remember that time when you came off the grid when I was on Aura TV? I, re I remember, Abby. You were so bold and so fearless. You were working for my buddy Putin at RT, the Russians. It took Vladimir Putin to give me back my freedom of speech, Abby. MSNBC bought my silence because I opposed the Iraq war. Me and Phil Donahue opposed the Iraq war and they bought my silence. <laughs> but now I'm with RT. I love RT. But that was, that was a great time, Abby, when you came off the grid with me. <laughs> <laughs> and Eric is actually like mimicking, <clears throat> like you actually look like him while you're talking. I mean, it's a full bodied impression. Jesse, how'd you get mixed up with, uh, with Judy Wood and Alex Jones? What was that about? Well, you know, Jim Fetzer kind of led me down a bad path. You know, he's the one talking about holograms at the finish line in Sandy Hook. And uh, I don't entertain any of that bullshit. I do think Paul McCartney died. I do think Paul McCartney died. That's a body double. I've seen body doubles in Saigon that would make the hair of the back of your neck stand up. <laughs> <laughs> I, look, I broke the story. Robbie, I broke the story to, to Governor Ventura. I, I, I literally broke it. Nifflewords.com. I was working 16-hour days. Now I was working 18-hour days. We were down there having barbecue, doing the Calypso, doing the cha-cha, looking at all the documents. Operation Northwich, James Bamford, you name it. It's all there. Bohemian Grove, Bilderberg, CFR, Trilateral Commission. They're all there with Henry Kissinger. They all know what they're doing. We've been exposing it for so long. And uh, buy my supplements. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that, that says it all, you guys. You guys are awesome. 
Uh, check out Jackman Radio. Thank you so much, you guys, for coming on. Uh, really appreciate it. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Abby and Robin, Thanks for, having, for us. Having, us, having us on, guys. And we'll send you the special when it's out. We'd love to hear a Media Roots review. We, we will. I can't wait to watch you guys. Definitely send it to us. Yes, please. Right on. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you.